The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, your climate focused podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, and I have Olympic fever, my friends. I know this isn't an Olympics recap podcast, but I can't help but talk about how impressed I am by the strength, grace, and tenacity of the world's elite athletes. I actually miss the old days when the Olympics were held every four years and you got summer and winter in the same year. Of course, now the Olympics are staggered every two years and, you know, I'll take it. I miss the Olympics being held last summer, but hey, better late than never. I have a gold medal show for you listeners. In fact, it's a first in the kind podcast in that I was having a glass of wine while recording. Shh. That's because today's guest is Bart Hansen, the founder and owner of Dane Cellars, a winery in Sonoma Valley, California. With a lifelong passion for fine wine, Bart became a winemaker early on in his career. Then in 2007, he and his wife opened their own place where they make delicious Bordeaux-inspired wines. And for those who are wine curious, I sipped on a glass of his delightful Chenin Blanc. Delicious wines aside, I asked Bart to be on the show because in the spirit of our episode with Idaho farmer Corey Whitman, I wanted to showcase someone who lives, breathes, and works the land, as well as to show how climate change can impact some of our favorite treats in life. It's not just wine, friends. Someday we'll talk about climate change impacts on coffee beans. But first and next, my conversation with Bart Hansen. Welcome back, listeners. So happy to have a glass of wine and be here with Bart Hansen. Welcome to the show, Bart. Thank you for having me. It looks really beautiful where you are, listeners. We are on Zoom, so I can see that Bart is sitting outside and the trees are green and it looks like the sky is sort of bluish gray. I think you're probably in a nicer day than we are here in the D.C. area. Yeah, it's actually um, uh, the, the I have the sun behind me, so it it's not showing. It is a crystal clear blue day here in Sonoma. Um, uh, we're right now in the middle of a real nice kind of weather pattern. Um, we're not being affected by any of the fires burning in here in California. Um, our coastal influence is back. So we'll have a little bit of fog in the morning. That's keeping it cool. Um, you know, the fog comes in, uh, late at night and cools down everything. So our, our temperatures have been really nice right now. We're in the mid eighties during the middle of the day. So it's been nice. Well, and I, that is my favorite kind of climate where it's nice during the day and then in the evenings it cools down. And to sort of jump in a little bit on climate change, I just read a story that said one of the more troubling trends that the climate scientists are seeing is this lack of the temperatures growing cooler at night, which is just bad news for somebody like me who loves to sleep in a cold room. When it's 40 degrees outside, I have my window open because I, I want all the blankets. I want the cool air. But that I'm happy to hear that you're getting that coastal fog and for any listener that has been in Northern California, you might, you've probably experienced it. It's really lovely. Yeah. I mean, the, the fact is, is, you know, jumping right into climate change is that our cold, our, our weather patterns have definitely changed. And, and we have definitely um, on, on our podcast, we've talked to a lot of growers and stuff and um, there's definitely less fog 
the pattern has definitely changed. And this year, for whatever reason, we're seeing a little bit more of what we remember as normality um, of the fog coming in late at night. Um, from where I live, we're over the hill from Petaluma, Sonoma Valleys, um, you know, a little more inland. Um, so the, the fog may not come all the way into the valley, but it butts up against Sonoma Mountain. Um, and, and and that helps cool everything down. And that's why we're able to make the beautiful wines that we do here. Um, so with that pattern changing, um, and then the other thing that we've had is we've had an extremely windy spring, um, much more than what we've seen in the past. Um, and, and that also goes along with, you know, the difference in, in how things are changing. Well, and that was one of the reasons why I was interested in having a winemaker on the show, because, you know, for many people, they confuse weather and climate, right? And climate is the the long-term trends of weather, as you know. But when you're making wine, your vintage is very year to year because your conditions vary, right? So if you have um, an extreme hot spell or, you know, uh, late frost, little things like that that are more weather can definitely influence how your vintage comes out. So as a as a wine drinker myself, I'm used to knowing, okay, that year was a good for Pinot and that year was a good, you know, you start to internalize these things as you taste and enjoy um, certain vintages. How as a long time winemaker, so you've been in this business, as you said, over 30 years, how do you take the weather that you see year to year and in your mind kind of internalize it as a climate pattern? Well, I mean, I think what we're seeing is that um, we're not getting as cold during the winter. So things are not going as dormant. Mm -hmm. You know, once uh, when a vine goes to sleep, it starts storing energy for the following year. And, um, if we would start to see spring, start to see um, bud break, let's call it in um, in end of March, early April, um, bud ba- break has been significantly earlier in past years. Not every year, but in past years. And and we always see bud break, and that means when the vine is starting to awaken. You know, just like on any tree, um, when you see those first blooms, um, it's it's gotten earlier and earlier. So what that has done, and I don't know if I'm answering your question here, but but let's see if I can get around to it. What that's done is made frost um, a bigger concern. For sure. Yeah. Um, because it doesn't mean, just because it's warmer doesn't mean we're not going to have frost. I mean, that's the weather patterns, right? Um, so frost has been a bigger concern. Um, this year in France, um, you know, on April 7th, I, I, do, I did write down some notes, so I had the dates right. Um, but, you know... Europe has had had record highs for the month of March. Um, and then on April 7th, they had a, a, a record low of 18 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. And, and so they went through this entire um, frost season where, you know, some vineyards lost as much as 80% of their crop. That is, you know, weather related, right? Like they had a cold system that came in and they couldn't even use um, systems to move the air because the the inversion layer um, wasn't there. It didn't get warmer. So mixing the air didn't help bring high, hot, warmer air from higher altitude. Um, and, in, and, and so is that weather or is that climate? Well, I think it's climate that, 
shows up in the face of weather. Yeah, um, I think that's right. We had a meteorologist on the show back um, earlier this year who said that, you know, weather, if you put it in football terms, weather is like one down in a play in a game and climate is like the history of the NFL. And, but, you know, if, and, and I like to remind listeners too, that as you said, just because someplace has a late frost or you have your cooler nights now with the fog coming in, it doesn't mean that global warming or that climate change isn't happening. Really the term climate change can mean, you know, what we're seeing is more extremes. So you might have a little bit of a cold spell and somewhere else is off the charts warm and we're looking at glo- average global temperatures. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, let's look at what's going on right now. You know, the, the flooding in Germany, the extreme weather you guys are having in the uh, East Coast and the Midwest, you know, these storms and, and, and how often they're coming. You know, one of the things that we're seeing here is that um, the overall rise in temperature what that's done, it, it is it is going back to this thing of bud break. It it, it, it advanced bud bud break. So bud break is earlier. Um, vines aren't going as dormant, and so there's more stress. You know, the ground is drier. Um, mm-hmm. We had very little rain this year. Um, we're in the middle of a huge drought here out in the west and, and here in Sonoma County, including um, included. Um, how how does something like the drought impact your grape growing? That really depends on the specific vineyard and, and, and how you farm. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certainly a, a lot of vineyards, and these are mainly very old vines, that are dry farmed, uh, meaning no irrigation whatsoever. Um, they rely on the temperatures, I mean, on the, on the year's rain. When establishing a vineyard, um, you typically put out drip emitters um, to um, let the vines for the first few, few years, you know, really get established, get the root system growing, get it down into the soil. That's low amounts of water, but it's still water. Mm-hmm. Uh, so here in Sonoma County, we get our water many different ways. Um, one is out of the Russian River, um, which um, is a, a river that runs through both Mendocino and Sonoma County. Um, and then we have some, um, some reservoirs, Lake Sonoma, Lake Mendocino, um, both those uh, lakes are uh, at their lowest um, recorded um, levels ever. Um, and then ground wells. And there, there, there are stories of, depending on where your well is, um, some people, um, they're right at like 25 feet. They have water, you know, looking in their visual well. There's other stories of, you know, 250 and 300 feet down. Wow. Um, uh, the county has started to regulate um, water. Um, I heard a, a story about a local grower um, that uh, is now having to truck in water from other vineyards that that company owns. It's a very large corporation um, because the vineyard manager of that specific ranch didn't buy enough water when he could have. So, wow. you know, they, they can get recycled um, water. Right, because in California, California allows the use of gray water, right? It, it does in certain things, yes. And, and grape growing is one of those things. And then you have your own irrigation ponds, you know, and those irrigation ponds are, sh- are shared usage for frost control, frost, frost control also. So do you think that what you were just talking about a winemaker that is more you know, kind of a larger 
facility. Do you think that addressing some of these kind of long-term concerns that are going to be imposed by climate change is going to be harder on smaller producers like you? Well, so that's it's really interesting. So I, you know, during my career, I've worked for large wineries. I started back in the 80s where we didn't really think about any of this stuff. Um, we used water because we had it. You know, we didn't pick up brooms and sweep <laughs> up. We we used hoses and pushed the water yep. into the drain, right? And then cleaned it up. Um, uh, that practice has gone away. Um, but again, still working at larger wineries where you you have your water. And, and then when I worked for the Benzigers, Mike was very focused on water conservation. So, you know, we had pressure washers, not open hoses, because it uses less water. Um, how we cleaned our barrels was very regulated on how much time to really cut down on the amount of water. Um, and all that water was going into a water recycling pond where we would recycle it and reuse it for irrigation. Now you go forward with my small uh, winery that I share um, a space in a warehouse with two other winemakers. And we're having to buy water from the um, people who own the business park. And then we're having to pay for it to be um, recycled and then put back into the system. And so now all of a sudden you watch your water use usage very, very closely. I mean, the water is a commodity as much as wine. Yes. And I really was not aware of it until I started sharing this space when, you know, I pay my rent every week or every month. And then I pay, you know, our water bill um, along with those other things. And you actually see it. Um, you, 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 one of the gentlemen, he likes to, when wine barrels are empty, if they're not kept full, they shrink a little bit and they'll Mm -hmm. leak. So what you do is you fill them full of water and then they soak up and they're tight and they're ready for wine. Well, he used to like to fill up his barrels, you know, and they're 60 gallons each and you fill up 25 or 30 barrels. You can start adding up how much water that is. Dump it down the drain. It goes through the processing. The bill's, you know, quite large. And I said, well, you know, what we used to do at my previous job is we would rinse them with our pressure washer, a lot less water, and with very hot water. And then that kind of steams the barrel. And you don't need nearly as much water. And it works just as effectively. And that made a huge difference to us. And, and you know, we're, we're small independent wineries. We're not, you know, large corporations. So every little bit helps. Right, right. You kind of have to be scrappy, I guess. Yes, you kind of do. You kind of <laughs> do. Um, so let's pivot and talk a little about wildfires because I know, and and maybe I'm a little more attuned than the normal East Coaster to the fires that ravage um, the West Coast, in particular California, because I have family in the area and and obviously a, a love of the wine. What you know, aside from sort of personal risk and obviously family and and employees and friends and so forth and and light, you know, life matters. What, what do the wildfires mean for wine production? This is such a like complex thing because it's all about one, your proximity to the wildfires Mm -hmm. and two, where the grapevines are at in their um, growing. So if they're old vines versus new vines. No, no, no. where they're at in their yearly growing segment. Ah. So, so, so last year we had some extreme 
um, extreme fires in the area. There were um, thousands of tons of grapes that were not picked. Um, then there were grapes that were picked that are tainted with smoke taint. And, and a lot of people say, well, I like really oaky Chardonnay. So the smoke taint might make them, you know, you can use less barrels. Um, what people don't understand is that smoke taint is not toasted oak or barbecue. Um, it's ashtray. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, 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 and Australia has, has had this problem for years um, and so they have a little more research than we have, but still we haven't had enough research to kind of see where it's at. So the, the idea is, is that if there's a fire and if it's during this period of time, during what we call verasion, where the um, grape is uh, going from, um, it's starting to sweeten up, it's starting to get ripe, um, the grape actually breathes. And so if you're in a close proximity to the fire, um, or in an area, maybe not even close proximity to the fire, but the, the smoke is there, the, the grape will respire and it will take in um, those compounds uh, from the smoke. Wow. And then what ends up happening in extreme, um, in extreme cases, um, you can notice that right away. You can notice it sometimes in the juice um, or certainly in the wine. But at low levels... Um, you just don't know. Um, there, there are lab tests that they can do, um, but they, there's not necessarily a baseline for like, when is it actually, when can you actually taste it or when can you actually smell it? So we're working, last year there were hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars spent by wineries sending in lab samples to start creating these baselines. And then you add on top of that is some of the varietals like Syrah, let's say, it has those compounds in it naturally. Mm-hmm. And, and that's part of the makeup of the wine. So, so then there's that data also that kind of skews thing. So to go back to how does it affect us? Um, we are all on pins and needles around here when it comes to fires. One, because we've all seen the devastation. Right. But two, it, it affects our farming. And, um, you know, grape growers have crop insurance. Um, which is very comp- complicated. Um, there's been stories of um, some insurance companies not offering grape or um, crop insurance. Um, uh, the federally backed stuff, I think, is pretty set, but you know, there's other levels of it. Right. Um, uh, so, so it's all again, it's all a matter of when the fire is and what's your proximity. Um, in 2020, last year, um, I made very little wine. Um, my, the white wine that I made, um, uh, I, I actually, I'm sorry, I didn't make a white wine. Um, mm-hmm. the grower, um, had decided that he just wasn't going to sell it because he was going to collect crop insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of the vineyards that I get, uh, my Grenache and Mouvedra from, um, there were multiple grow or multiple wineries who buy that, who had it all tested, um, saw the numbers were high enough. Um, we were released or we had to be asked to release ourselves from our contract. Um, there is a, a smoke, um, clause in most contracts now, which was something there never was. Um, and so we only made wine from two small vineyards. Um, and both of those, we're not in the close proximity to the fires. Um, and they were also both um, picked earlier than most of the smoke damage. Um, 
so far the wines look great and I'm very excited about it, but there's this cloud, literally cloud hanging over it of there are people that are like, oh, well, if it's from 2020, I don't want anything to do with it. And then the crazy thing is, is down the road, no one ever thinks about it. So, you know, in 2017, we had fires here in Sonoma Valley, which directly impacted us um, uh, in, in loss of homes and lives and stuff. Um, and there were wines that were picked before those fires, um, which are beautiful, outstanding wines. And then there were a small amount of, of grapes that were, had not been picked. Um, and, and we saw a little bit that, of that at first. It was like, well, that's from 17, so we don't want anything to do with it. But through education, um, we, we've been able to kind of steer past that. We'll see what happens with 2020. We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. So as a, as a person who's, you know, working the land and seeing different, you know, you, you see those impacts that happen from vintage to vintage and, you know, you might have that late frost or pests that don't get killed off in the winter or different things happening. How high would you rate climate change on your worry scale? One of the things that people talk about is the fact that, um, you know, they may not be able to grow champagne in champagne, right? Mm-hmm. They, they may not be able, you know, Napa Valley may get too hot for Cabernet Sauvignon. You know, Ca- Napa Valley has made a stake in that it is Cabernet country. Um, if you're not growing- Am I going to be buying my cabs from Idaho in 20 years? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but you might be buying them from Sonoma, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, kind of traditionally, uh, Napa is a little farther inland, so it's a little warmer. Mm -hmm. Um, so Cabernet has thrived there here in Sonoma. Um, we certainly make some outstanding Cabernets and, and other varieties We have a much more diverse, um, uh, climate here than they do in Napa because we have, um, we're a bigger County. We're closer to the coast. Um, but we're typically kind of known more for, let's call it Chardonnay and, and Pinot Noir, Pinot, which are yeah. the cooler climate varieties. Um, there is talk of, you know, uh, varieties that will do well. Um, there are growers um, and, and wineries, when they replant a block, um, they're not planting typical varieties. They're looking at um, some of these Italian varieties and these uh, Spanish varieties um, that are on the Mediterranean that are much more um, that handle hot weather a lot more and looking for them, maybe not even to replant them completely, uh, but to plant some of those as a, as an ability to blend with something like Cabernet um, because it's getting so hot and and getting those right flavors. Uh, So, so what, what we're going to see in the immediate impact of climate change is we've seen style change. Like, the style of the wines is, is changing, you know, Cabernets from Napa are definitely getting more concentrated. The fruit profile is changing to a lot more darker fruits, um, very higher alcohols, riper uh, uh, numbers. Now there are people that say, well, then what just pick earlier, right? Don't, don't let it get as ripe, Mm -hmm. but the flavor um, the, the flavors have changed also. How the grape gets ripe is changing. Um, where you get those flavors. In a cooler area, 
um, you're able to ripening is prolonged. So um, wine grapes have a thing called tannin. And people in general think about tannin as being um, the dryness in their mouth or the what we call it furriness. Over time, the tannin drops out of the wine and the fruit is left to develop. When a grape gets ripe really quickly from extreme hot weather, it takes a lot longer. You don't get that tannin doesn't go away. So it, it's harder to, to soften those flavors. So again, here in Sonoma, um, we're seeing people um, places that had Cabernet in the past um, that were maybe on the cooler side. Um, those grapes are going up in value because um, they're looked at as being something um, that's very useful. And, and, and a lot of that is from wineries in Napa Valley that need a different flavor profile to blend in with their grapes to be able to stay stylistic. You know, there's no doubt that in Burgundy, um, where they grow Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in France, that that those the style of that wine has changed. You know, there would be years where they would have a very hard time getting things ripe on cool years. Well, they don't have those issues anymore. Right. You know, those wines were lower in alcohol. Um, they're they're not lower in alcohol now um, because they're getting riper quicker. Um, you know, Oregon grows. You know a cool climate place grows a lot of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And there were many years where they would have a hard time getting varieties, those varieties ripe. Well, they're not having those issues anymore. <laughs> they're, they're getting, they're getting ripe. And in a matter of fact, there's parts of Oregon where they're starting to plant things like Zinfandel wow. and Syrah and Grenache and even some Cabernet in places. You know, the more I talk to winemakers and people like you, whether it's when I'm in California wine tasting or this conversation, it just the overwhelming impression that I have is that winemaking from the growing through to the bottling is like a big chemistry experiment. You know, when I just as a little bit of reference, when I started um, in Sonoma Valley, there were 13 wineries. I mean, it was a very small um, industry Um you knew all your neighbors. Everybody was kind of making the same style wines. Um, now here in Sonoma Valley, there's well over a hundred brands. Now, you know, things have changed, you know, now instead of having an estate, uh, all, as I always say, an all tree lined estate, <laughs> uh, there's a whole bunch of us that make wine in warehouses and business parks. And that's awesome. Yeah. It, it, it allows me to make a small amount of wine every year. It's very collaborative. Like I said, I share with two other winemakers. There's some places where there might be 15 or 20 different winemakers in. So that's really been awesome. But, but I think, as you say, it's a chemical, I mean, a, 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 an experiment or, or a chem lab, um, that's very true. And, and then you have people trying to establish themselves as being different. So they're, they're, doing unique blends. Um, they're blending things that wouldn't maybe necessarily traditionally be blended together. There's, um, you know, people are using fruit and wine and um, making uh, sparkling wines out of things that you wouldn't do. So everybody's trying to establish their own like kind of style and their piece in the market. Yeah. Um, so climate change has um, certainly impacted that. It's made people think about it differently. Um, and so that's been good for the industry, I think. But, you know, this is a slow change. Um, you know, they talk about English sparkling wines. 
Um, you know, that, that business has really grown in the past five years and, and it's being respected. You know, the wine publications are talking about it and they're writing about it and collectors are. So I shouldn't make the face I just made. (laughs) Well, (laughs) this is, you know, fortunately this is radio, not, um, or this, yeah. Uh, this is not TV. Um, yeah, I, I think I think the biggest thing is what I've learned is I'm open to everything now. Yeah. When someone comes to me and says, hey, I'm making this wine from the Sierra foothills where I might go, eh, you know, eh, it's just that or Idaho. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's some great <laughs> wine coming out of Idaho. There really are. Oh, wait, we- I just made that up. Really? There's Idaho wine. Oh yeah, there's Idaho wine. There's there is wine made in every state of of the country right now. Maybe not all of them. The the grapes are um, grown there. Sometimes mm-hmm. they import um, the grapes um, from places. But there's wine being made everywhere. The Texas wine um, industry has taken off. Uh, Northern Arizona. Um, there's some great wines coming out of there. These are all small production things these are not things you're going to be finding in your Kroger's and Safeways but they're out there they're out there well I went to the uh to a Virginia wine tasting festival uh over the weekend that was held out at Mount Vernon at George Washington's estate and you know I remember 20 years ago going to this same festival and I really noticed a change in the quality of what I had 20 years ago versus what I had the other day um and I used to make fun of the Virginia wine industry, but it's it's coming along too. So yeah, you know, and a lot of that is it's it's really interesting. When I was young and in the business, and you would look to see where there were wine jobs around, and you would see places like Virginia and stuff, and you would roll your eyes and go, "No way!" And <laughs> a, a friend of mine who was a winemaker here in Napa, he moved to Minneapolis or outside Minneapolis and worked for a winery and a distillery out there like really, really difficult growing, but they made good wines. Um, And now he's moved to Virginia and he's making wine in Virginia. Um, And he's making wine at this facility that is every bit of the showcase Napa Valley winery. They have hundreds of visitors every weekend. Um, Their wines are not, you know, inexpensive by any means. So part of this is one is that the the technology is there. You know, mm-hmm. 20 years ago, there were not um, salespeople going to Virginia to sell them nice barrels and really good winemaking equipment. A lot of the wines then were like fruit wines or they were fruit wines blended with wine grapes. There's um, skilled grape growers out there now where then there were farmers who were, you know, planting some grapes to see how it goes. So it, it's it's changed. You know, you have Napa Valley winemakers moving back there to make wines. So that's a that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, and, and I hope that I'll make it back out west at some point, too. It's been too long since I've um, had a, a nice wine tasting weekend. So I will. We 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 are definitely starting to see visitors. Um, a, a lot of um, my customers and, and our friends from our podcast that we do are starting to come back out. Um, you know, we're still seeing a lot of local tourism without a doubt. I think everybody across the country can say that there's definitely a lot more people that are going on, on discovering their own States or their surrounding States. Sure. Um, but, but we're looking forward to everybody coming back because it's a big part of our economy and, um, and you're welcome anytime. Well, for those listeners who want to, 
hear more of a, a podcast that is more specific to wine, not necessarily with the climate angle, how can they find you? How can they listen? Well, somehow we always end up talking about climate, um, but our podcast is um, called The Winemakers, um, and we're on all the forums. Um, so what we are is we are a grape grower, a winemaker, a sommelier, and a consumer. And um, basically what we do is we have winemakers and grape growers and wine professionals on every week, and we just kind of help them tell their stories. Um, and uh, this last week we had um, we had two guys that were definitely, they were the smartest guys in the room. They were more um, definitely educated in, in the chemistry behind winemaking and uh, the, uh, a lot of microbiological stuff about soils. Um, and it was really a fascinating conversation, but, uh, sometimes we're just sitting around drinking wine and making fun of ourselves. Hey, you know what? There is nothing wrong with that. Bart, I thank you for your time. I thank you for your delicious wine, this Chenin Blanc. I didn't even know that I liked Chenin Blanc until I did this virtual tasting last year with you and, um, our friends over at 16600 and it's really become a, a favorite. So, Thank you for all you do. I look forward to making it back out West and actually seeing your, your um, warehouse, <laughs> perhaps. Yeah. We call it a winery. And, I and love it, yeah. <laughs> and, and there's no doubt when you walk in that it's a winery. Uh, <laughs> it even smells like a winery. And that was Bart Hansen, our guest this week on the EcoRights Speaks podcast, courtesy of our esteemed host, Chelsea Henderson. And I am your producer, Price Atkinson, giving Chelsea the rest of this episode off. And if you are a wine drinker, connoisseur, uh, want to hear more from Bart Hansen, again, check out their podcast, The Winemakers. Check that out on iTunes and all the different apps. You can give them a follow on Instagram, at WinemakerPod. Again, that was Bart Hansen from Dane Cellars out in Sonoma Valley. Uh, thanks so much. It was really, uh, really interesting interview. So I'm really glad we had that one and Chelsea could bring that one to you. And I also want to thank all our listeners, certainly that have helped us grow this podcast since season one. We're currently in season three. You can go back and listen to all kinds of past episodes, but you know, we grew our, uh, certainly our listenership in season one and it grew again in season two and we're continuing to grow uh, in, in season three right now. I've got one ask, just one one simple ask from each of you guys listening to download, listen, subscribe, whether it's every single week or this is your first episode. If you like what we do and you subscribe to this podcast, tell or share the podcast with one friend. Everybody listening right now these days, and many are looking for new podcasts and ideas and suggestions. How about share this one with just one of your friends? Tell them about it. Uh, send them a link. Direct them to republican.org forward slash podcast. There's many different ways you can listen, iTunes, Spotify, uh, off our website. I mean, we're on all kinds of social media, uh, all over our social media uh, profiles at Republican on Twitter, Facebook. You can find the Eco Right Speaks. It's very, very simple. All, my, all we have is one ask. Just tell one friend. Share it. Let them know why you like it and why they should check it out. So I uh, want to thank our new members this week, Glenda T. in Texas, Nancy M. in Indiana, Samuel M. in Virginia, Martha M. in Florida, and then Donald W. in Alabama. Those are just some of our new members that are standing with us, which you can do at Republic N. 
org. We would love for you to stand with us. It takes mere seconds to sign up and, and join us. And we don't spam you. You get all kinds of good, really helpful information uh, from us. You get uh, some poll questions. We value your feedback. And anything that you like about the podcast, what we do at Republican.org, we're always wanting to hear from you. So stand with us, Republican.org forward slash join. Also, finally, again, Bob Inglis, our executive director, former congressman, getting him back on the road, got him back on the road this summer. Uh, obviously, we're monitoring the current situation with the Delta variant, but all our plans are still focused on uh, being out and about. And again, this fall, if you would like to have Bob or any member of our team participate in an event you've got planned, a panel, even if it's something virtually uh, that can be done, which are very easy to do, obviously via uh, Zoom, Skype, all kinds of different uh, virtual ways uh, to to run your events, let us know. Drop me a line, Price Atkinson uh, with the Republican.org team, Price at Republican.org is my email address. Would love to get Bob or a member of our team um, signed up to participate in your event. So let us know uh, if you have an interest. But that's going to do it for this week. We will be back again next week with yet another episode of the Eco Right Speaks. Chelsea Henderson, yes, she will be back to take you through another wonderful guest interview that we've got. And we will do that again next week right here on the Eco Right Speaks. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.